Tale number three of Five Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Five Tales by John Galsworthy. Tale number three The Apple Tree. Introductory part. From Murray's Hippolytus of Euripides, the apple tree, the singing and the gold. In their silver wedding day, Ashurst and his wife were motoring along the outskirts of the moor, intending to crown the festival by stopping the night at Torquay, where they had first met. This was the idea of Stella Ashurst, whose character contained a streak of sentiment. If she had long lost the blue-eyed, flower-like charm, the cool, slim purity of face and form, the apple-blossom colouring which had so swiftly and so oddly affected Ashurst twenty-six years ago, she was still, at forty-three, a comely and faithful companion, whose cheeks were faintly mottled and whose grey-blue eyes had acquired a certain fullness. It was she who had stopped the car where the common rose steeply into the left, and a narrow strip of larch and beech, with here and there a pine, stretched out towards the valley between the road and the first long high hill of the full moor. She was looking for a place where they might lunch, for Ashurst never looked for anything, and this, between the golden firs and the feathery green larches smelling of lemons in the last sun of April, this, with a view into the deep valley and up to the long moor heights, seemed fitting to the decisive nature of one who sketched in watercolors and loved romantic spots. Grasping her paint-box, she got out. "'Won't this do, Frank?' Ashurst, rather like a bearded Schiller, gray in the wings, tall, long-legged, with large remote gray eyes, which sometimes filled with meaning and became almost beautiful, with nose a little to one side, and bearded lips just open, Ashurst, forty-eight and silent, grasped the luncheon basket and got out too. Oh, look, Frank, a grave! By the side of the road, where the track from the top of the common crossed it at right angles, and ran through a gate past the narrow wood, was a thin mound of turf, six feet by one, with a moorstone to the west, and on it someone had thrown a blackthorn spray and a handful of bluebells. Ashurst looked, and the poet in him moved. At crossroads, a suicide's grave. Poor mortals with their superstitions. Whoever lay there, though, had the best of it, no clammy sepulchre among other hideous graves carved with futilities, just a rough stone, the wide sky, and wayside blessings. And without comment, for he had learned not to be a philosopher in the bosom of his family, he strode away up on to the common, dropped the luncheon basket under a wall, spread a rug for his wife to sit on, she would turn up from her sketching when she was hungry, and took from his pocket Murray's translation of the Hippolytus. He had soon finished reading of the Cyprian and her revenge, 
and looked at the sky instead. And watching the white clouds so bright against the intense blue, Ashurst on his silver wedding day longed for he knew not what. Maladjusted to life, man's organism. One's mode of life might be high and scrupulous, but there was always an undercurrent of greediness, a hankering, and a sense of waste. Do women have it too? Who could tell? And yet men who gave vent to their appetites for novelty, their riotous longings for new adventures, new risks, new pleasures, these suffered no doubt from the reverse side of starvation, from surfeit. No getting out of it, a maladjusted animal, civilized man. There could be no garden of his choosing, of the apple-tree, the singing and the gold, in the words of that lovely Greek chorus, no achievable Elysium in life, or lasting haven of happiness for any man with a sense of beauty, nothing which could compare with the captured loveliness in a work of art, set down for ever so that to look on it or read was always to have the same precious sense of exaltation and restful inebriety. Life no doubt had moments with the quality of beauty, of unbidden flying rapture, but the trouble was they lasted no longer than the span of a cloud's flight over the sun, impossible to keep them with you as art caught beauty and held it fast. They were fleeting as one of the glimmering or golden visions one had of the soul and nature, glimpses of its remote and brooding spirit. Here, with the sun hot on his face, a cuckoo calling from a thorn-tree, and in the air the honey savor of gorse. Here, among the little fronds of the young fern, the starry blackthorn, while the bright clouds drifted by high above the hills and dreamy valleys, here and now was such a glimpse. But in a moment it would pass, as the face of Pan, which looks round the corner of a rock, vanishes at your stare. And suddenly he sat up. Surely there was something familiar about this view, this bit of common, that ribbon of road, the old wall behind him. While they were driving, he had not been taking notice, never did, thinking of far places or of nothing, but now he saw. Twenty-six years ago, just at this time of year, from the farmhouse within half a mile of this very spot, he had started for that day in Torquay, whence it might be said he had never returned and a sudden ache beset his heart. He had stumbled on just one of those past moments in his life whose beauty and rapture he had failed to arrest, whose wings had fluttered away into the unknown. He had stumbled on a buried memory, a wild, sweet time, swiftly choked and ended. And turning on his face, he rested his chin on his hands and stared at the short grass where the little blue milkwort was growing. End of Introductory Part Parts 1 and 2 And this is what he remembered. On the first 
of May, after their last year together at college, Frank Ashurst and his friend, Robert Garton, were on a tramp. They had walked that day from Brent, intending to make Chagford, but Ashford's football knee had given out, and according to their map they had still some seven miles to go. They were sitting on a bank beside the road where a track crossed alongside a wood, resting the knee and talking of the universe, as young men will. Both were over six feet and thin as rails. Ashurst, pale, idealistic, full of absence. Garton, queer, round the corner, knotted, curly, like some primeval beast. Both had a literary bent. Neither wore a hat. Ashurst's hair was smooth, pale, wavy, and had a way of rising on either side of his brow, as if always being flung back. Carton's was a kind of dark, unfathomed mop. They had not met a soul for miles. My dear fellow, Garton was saying, pity's only an effect of self-consciousness. It's a disease of the last five thousand years. The world was happier without. Ashurst, following the clouds with his eyes, answered, It's the pearl in the oyster, anyway. My dear chap, all our modern unhappiness comes from pity. Look at animals and red Indians, limited to feeling their own occasional misfortunes. Then look at ourselves, never free from feeling the toothaches of others. Let's get back to feeling for nobody and have a better time. You'll never practice that. Garton pensively stirred the hotchpotch of his hair. To attain full growth, one mustn't be squeamish. To starve oneself emotionally is a mistake. All emotion is to the good. Enriches life. Yes, and when it runs up against chivalry? Ah, that's so English. If you speak of emotion, the English always think you want something physical and are shocked. They're afraid of passion, but not of lust. Oh, no, so long as they can keep it secret. Ashurst did not answer. He had plucked a blue flowerlet and was twiddling it against the sky. A cuckoo began calling from a thorn-tree. The sky, the flowers, the songs of birds. Robert was talking through his hat, and he said, Well, let's go on and find some farm where we can put up. In uttering those words, he was conscious of a girl coming down from the common just above them. She was outlined against the sky, carrying a basket, and you could see that sky through the crook in her arm. Ashurst, who saw beauty without wondering how it could advantage him, thought, How pretty! The wind, blowing her dark frieze skirt against her legs, lifted her battered peacock tam-o'-shanter. Her grayish blouse was worn and old, her shoes were split, her little hands rough and red, her neck browned. Her dark hair waved untidy across her broad forehead, her face was short, her upper lip short, showing a glint of teeth, her brows were straight and dark, her lashes long and dark, her nose straight. But her gray eyes were the wonder, 
dewy as if opened for the first time that day. She looked at Ashurst. Perhaps he struck her as strange, limping along without a hat, with his large eyes on her and his hair falling back. He could not take off what was not on his head, but put up his hand in a salute and said, "'Can you tell us if there's a farm near here where we could stay the night? I've gone lame.' "'There's only our farm near, sir,' she spoke without shyness, in a pretty, soft, crisp voice. "'And where is that?' "'Down here, sir.' "'Would you put us up?' "'Oh, I think we would.' "'Will you show us the way?' "'Yes, sir.' He limped on, silent, and Garton took up the catechism. "'Are you a Devonshire girl?' "'No, sir.' "'What, then?' "'From Wales.' "'Oh, I thought you were a Celt. So it's not your farm.' "'My aunt's, sir. And your uncle's?' "'He is dead.' "'Who farms it, then?' "'My aunt and my three cousins.' "'But... Your uncle was a Devonshire man? Yes, sir. Have you lived here long? Seven years. How'd you like it after Wales? I don't know, sir. I suppose you don't remember? Oh, yes, but it is different. Oh, I believe you. Ashurst broke in suddenly. How old are you? Seventeen, sir. And what's your name? Megan David. This is Robert Garton, and I am Frank Ashurst. We wanted to get on to Chagford. It is a pity your leg is hurting you. Ashurst smiled, and when he smiled his face was rather beautiful. Descending past the narrow wood, they came on the farm suddenly, a long, low, stone-built dwelling with casement windows, in a farmyard where pigs and fowls and an old mare were straying. A short, steep-up grass hill behind was crowned with a few scotch firs, and in front an old orchard of apple-trees, just breaking into flower, stretching down to a stream and a long wild meadow. A little boy with oblique dark eyes was shepherding a pig, and by the house door stood a woman who came towards them. The girl said, "'It is Mrs. Narracombe, my aunt.' Mrs. Narracombe, my aunt, had a quick, dark eye, like a mother wild duck's, and something of the same snaky turn about her neck. We met your niece on the road, said Ashurst. She thought you might perhaps put us up for the night. Mrs. Narracombe, taking them in from head to heel, answered, Well, I can, if you don't mind one room. Megan, get the spare room ready and a bowl of cream. You'll be wanting tea, I suppose. Passing through a sort of porch made by two yew-trees and some flowering currant bushes, the girl disappeared into the house, her peacock tam-o'-shanter bright athwart that rosy pink and the dark green of the yews. Will you come into the parlor and rest your leg? You'll be from college, perhaps? We were, but we've gone down now. Mrs. Narracombe nodded sagely. The parlor, brick-floored, with bare table and shiny chairs and sofa stuffed with horsehair, seemed never to have been used, it was so terribly clean. 
Ashurst sat down at once on the sofa, holding his lame knee between his hands, and Mrs. Narracombe gazed at him. He was the only son of a late professor of chemistry, but people found a certain lordliness in one who was often so sublimely unconscious of them. "'Is there a stream where we could bathe?' "'There's the stream at the bottom of the orchard, but sitting down you'll not be covered.' "'How deep?' "'Well, tis about a foot and a half, maybe.' "'Oh, that'll be fine. Which way?' "'Down the lane, through the second gate on the right, and the pool's by the big apple tree that stands by itself. There's trout there, if you can tickle them.' "'They're more likely to tickle us.' Mrs. Narracombe smiled. There'll be the tea ready when you come back. The pool, formed by the damming of a rock, had a sandy bottom, and the big apple tree, lowest in the orchard, grew so close that its boughs almost overhung the water. It was in leaf, and all but in flower, its crimson buds just bursting. There was not room for more than one at a time in that narrow bath, and Ashurst waited his turn rubbing his knee, and gazing at the wild meadow, all rocks and thorn-trees and felled flowers, with a grove of beeches beyond, raised up on a flat mound. Every bough was swinging in the wind, every spring-bird calling, and a slanting sunlight dappled the grass. He thought of Theocritus and the river Cherwell, of the moon and the maiden with the dewy eyes, of so many things that he seemed to think of nothing, and he felt absurdly happy. During a late and sumptuous tea with eggs to it, cream and jam and thin fresh cakes touched with saffron, Garton decanted on the Celts. It was about the period of the Celtic awakening and the discovery that there was Celtic blood about this family had excited one who believed that he was a Celt himself. Sprawling on a horsehair chair, with a handmade cigarette dribbling from the corner of his curly lips, he had been plunging his cold pinpoints of eyes into Ashurst's and praising the refinement of the Welsh. To come out of Wales into England was like the change from China to earthenware. Frank, as a damned Englishman, had not, of course, perceived the exquisite refinement and emotional capacity of that Welsh girl, and, delicately stirring in the dark mat of his still-wet hair, he explained how exactly she illustrated the writings of the Welsh bard Morgan ap something in the twelfth century. Ashurst, full length on the horsehair sofa, and jutting far beyond its end, smoked a deeply coloured pipe, and did not listen, thinking of the girl's face when she brought in a relay of cakes. It had been exactly like looking at a flower, or some other pretty sight in nature, till, with a funny little shiver, she had lowered her glance and gone out, quiet as a mouse. "'Let's go to the kitchen,' said Garton, "'and see some more of her.' The kitchen was a whitewashed room with rafters, to which were attached smoked hams. There were flower-pots on the window-seal, and guns hanging on nails, queer mugs, china and pewter, and portraits of Queen Victoria. 
A long, narrow table of plain wood was set with bowls and spoons, under a string of high-hung onions. Two sheepdogs and three cats lay there and here. On one side of the recessed fireplace sat two small boys, idle and good as gold. On the other sat a stout, light-eyed, red-faced youth, with hair and lashes the color of the toe he was running through the barrel of a gun. Between them Mrs. Narracombe dreamily stirred some savory-scented stew in a large pot. Two other youths, oblique-eyed, dark-haired, rather sly-faced, like the two little boys, were talking together and lolling against the wall, and a short, elderly, clean-shaven man in corduroys, seated in the window, was conning a battered journal. The girl, Megan, seemed the only active creature, drawing cider and passing with the jugs from cask to table. Seeing them thus about to eat, Garton said, "'Ah, if you'll just let us, we'll come back when supper's over.' And without waiting for an answer, they withdrew again to the parlour. But the colour in the kitchen, the warmth, the scents, and all those faces heightened the bleakness of their shiny room, and they resumed their seats moodily. Regular gypsy type, those boys. There was only one Saxon, the fellow cleaning the gun. That girl is a very subtle study psychologically. Ashurst's lips twitched, and Garton seemed to him an ass just then. Subtle study. She was a wildflower, a creature it did you good to look at. Study. Garton went on. Emotionally, she would be wonderful. She wants awakening. And are you going to awaken her? Garton looked at him and smiled. How coarse and English you are! That curly smile seemed saying. And Ashurst puffed his pipe. Awaken her? That fool had the best opinion of himself. He threw up the window and leaned out. Dusk had gathered thick. The farm buildings and the wheelhouse were all dim and bluish, the apple-trees but a blurred wilderness, the air smelled of wood-smoke from the kitchen fire. One bird going to bed later than the others was uttering a half-hearted twitter, as though surprised at the darkness. From the stable came the snuffle and stamp of a feeding horse and away over there was the loom of the moor, and away and away the shy stars, which had not as yet full light, pricking white through the deep blue heavens. A quavering owl hooted. Ashurst drew a deep breath. What a night to wander out in! A padding of unshod hooves came up the lane, and three dim dark shapes passed, ponies on an evening march. Their heads, black and fuzzy, showed above the gate. At the tap of his pipe, and a shower of little sparks, they shied round and scampered. A bat went fluttering past, uttering its almost inaudible chip, chip. Ashurst held out his hand. On the upturned palm he could feel the dew. Suddenly from overhead he heard little burring boys' voices little thumps of boots thrown down, and another voice, crisp and soft, the girls putting them to bed, no doubt, and nine clear words, No, Rick, 
you can't have the cat in bed." Then came a skirmish of giggles and gurgles, a soft slap, a laugh so low and pretty that it made him shiver a little. A blowing sound, and the glim of the candle which was fingering the dusk above went out. Silence reigned. Ashurst withdrew to the room and sat down. His knee pained him, and his soul felt gloomy. You go to the kitchen, he said. I'm going to bed. End of Parts 1 and 2